0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how the expiration of federal COVID sick leave programs could impact the pandemic holiday season. And we get the latest on a new federal law that's expanding mental health services, pay, and benefits for firefighters.
1: It's not stable. You never really know how much money you'll be making in a given season.
0: That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The United States is one of a handful of industrialized nations that does not have a national paid sick leave policy. That leaves many workers with a dilemma if they're sick, whether to go to work feeling unwell or risk their paycheck or even their job by staying home. For a time, federal COVID leave programs helped give many employees the time to recover without the risk of infecting co-workers or customers. But those federal protections have expired— just in time for another pandemic holiday season and the looming threat of the Omicron variant, which has just been detected in the U.S. For more on all of this, we're joined by Ray Ellen Ellenbeschel, Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Ray, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Now, you write that economists and public health experts say paid sick leave is an essential tool to prevent the spread of COVID-19, a tool that could be used in conjunction with masks, testing and vaccines. All of this seems really pertinent when we consider that we're in a holiday shopping season. Uh, Many retail, restaurant or other hospitality workers don't have access to paid time off if they're feeling sick. Briefly talk about the impacts of this on workers who who don't have paid sick time.
2: It's pretty straightforward. It just means that, you know, while we're still in a pandemic, there are people who um, might wake up in the morning feeling sick uh, or might even have a positive COVID test and have to decide if uh, what they're going to do about it. Are they going to go to work Um even though they're ill, or are they going to stay home and really risk uh, a paycheck, a needed paycheck, uh, or maybe even risk being able to go back to a position at all. And that's uh, uh, sort of across the board in terms of um, people in the public health world and policy and the OECD. Um, That's not a situation that people should be in. Um, Paid sick leave is considered one of the um, tools, just like masks and distancing and stuff like that to, um, to make
0: sure that COVID doesn't spread or any disease, really. And I wanted to ask about the socioeconomic aspect of this, because there is a bit of inequality Quality in this lack of a nationwide policy, people with higher paying jobs are much more likely to have access to paid sick leave than those with lower income jobs. Talk about the impact of that.
2: What it means is that people in essential worker positions um, that are very public facing are least likely to have the protections that mean they can stay home when they're sick and still get paid. Um, When I talk to a doctor named um, Rita Hamad, she said, this, this is a really a glaring gap. And in California, a whole bunch of local public health agencies actually wrote a letter to the state saying, listen, these, the federal tax credits are about to run out, like, we as a state have got to extend this or we're going to find ourselves in a real problem here because people aren't going to have the time they need to stay home when they have COVID. But more importantly, they're also worried about taking time off if they get side effects from being vaccinated. So there was a real and is a real concern that there's a lot of people out there who might want to get vaccinated um, and be protected against uh, this disease, but don't want to because they are worried about having to miss a couple days of work, possibly.
0: Well, there were some changes, as I mentioned, made last year at the federal level to help address this problem. Uh, can you tell us about those? Like What was included in these provisions? Yep. So uh, those provisions
2: uh, were in 2020. They lasted about nine months. And what that did is gave uh, all uh, or most, most, most workers in the US, uh, two weeks of full pay for employees who were either quarantined or they were seeking some medical attention because they had COVID symptoms. Um, And then there were additional weeks um, at partial pay, about two thirds pay to care for a child who was stuck at home because of COVID. It is important to note it didn't apply to all employers. It only applied to those with less than 499 employees. Um, And then it also left room for employers with less than 50 employees to get an exemption. So it wasn't even that wasn't fully consistent across the board.
0: Right. And as you mentioned, they expired in September of 2020. Uh, So they were just really short term changes. Um, What happened after that? Yeah. After that, the employers
2: could decide if they wanted to participate. So there were tax credits that continued beyond that um, up until September. Um, And uh, employers could decide if they were going to to continue offering those that paid sick leave in exchange for tax
0: credits. Okay. So there wasn't reimbursement, but there were tax credits available. Right, right. And employers could choose to opt in. And just out of curiosity, how many employees used the federal paid sick leave, and did it make a dent? Was it did it help slow down the spread of COVID? Some researchers at Cornell looked into this. Um, some researchers
2: who who have been studying paid sick leave for a very long time, which is like a whole a whole niche in economics, and they found that about five percent of U.S. employees. Used the federal COVID sick leave protection. Um, And they uh, estimate that it did help flatten the curve. Um, But they also found that it wasn't quite enough to meet the real need. So what they mean by that is, you know, the number of people who were sick with any kind of illness but couldn't take time off went from about 5 million people per month before the pandemic to about 15 million people per month in late 2020. So that unmet sick leave need tripled even though the federal leave was in place, which the researchers are taking to mean even with the federal protections, it wasn't enough
0: to meet people's needs. Right. With the protections of the federal provisions expiring, some states have taken extra action. Uh, our state was one of them. What does this look like in Colorado?
2: Yeah, so last year, um, Colorado passed um, what some people uh, consider to be the strongest COVID sick leave protections of any state, which I was really interested to learn. Um, so there's two pieces to this sick leave law that that now is in effect in Colorado. One is that um all employees can earn um, up to six days of paid sick leave per year, starting in January that applies to all employers, regardless of size. Um, Then there was another piece that was about COVID sick leave specifically. And so that one says that um, in addition to that sort of permanent paid sick leave, when there is a public health emergency declared by officials, then employers have to add on, they have to supplement workers leave so that people can take up to two weeks of paid sick leave for that public health emergency. In this case, COVID leaves the possibility for future pandemics, fortunately or unfortunately, yikes. <laughs> um, and and that that provision saying that employers have to have to supplement um, paid sick leave so people can take a two-week chunk off, that doesn't expire until um about a month after the public health emergency expires. So it'll be at least February before it expires longer
0: if it gets extended due to something like a variant. And the state leave law uh, does have some limitations, right? It does. Um, Workers
2: don't get like refills of COVID leave. So you kind of get that one chunk of two weeks um, during the entire public health emergency Um, so, uh, for, you know, about a year, that's Mm -hmm. one, one chunk of, of two weeks off. And then the law does allow some workplaces, um, to, uh, have employees just use their paid time off, which can mean use their vacation time Mm -hmm. as long as they meet certain, certain conditions. So it's, it's not, uh, there are still situations where people can, can have to use vacation time, which, which might be it. Disincentive to staying home when you're sick,
0: I wanted to ask about individual employers. Um, were there any that took steps themselves to try to, you know, help employees who needed paid paid sick leave?
2: Yeah. so uh, a lot of employers have. There was a um KFF survey recently of sort of a national sample of of employers across the country. And that survey found that thirty seven percent of workers, work in a place that either expanded or started paid leave. Um, either leave to recover yourself from an illness or to help a relative. Um, but, the, you know, some employers did not do that. Um, and even 1% of workers had their paid sick leave reduced or eliminated. So that was possible and did happen even during a pandemic.
0: Not to overuse the Wild West cliche here, but it sounds like it's just a bit of a gamble, like what you're gonna find.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's where um, the significance of a national paid sick leave really comes in. When I was speaking with people who have studied this issue and studied what paid sick leave can do to reduce disease transmission, they were saying, you know, State and local policies, that's great. But as long as there isn't a a, a national requirement, there's always going to be people who fall through the cracks.
0: Well, President Biden's uh, Build Back Better Act is up for a vote in the Senate. Uh, It passed the House last month. Are there any provisions in the plan to address paid time off at the national level? So there is a possibility, that it's
2: been very much in flux, that there would be uh, some weeks in there of um, paid family and medical leave. That would not be to recover from a short-term illness, but rather to take care of um, a child or um, a sick relative. So slightly different, still relevant in this case, um, but unclear where, where that will go.
0: Ray Ellen Bichelle is Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. You will find a link to the story at our website, kunc.org. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Erin. Just ahead, we hear about a new federal law that's expanding mental health services as well as pay and benefits for firefighters. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Yesterday, we told you about the mental health struggles that some wildland firefighters face. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the new federal infrastructure law. It expands mental health services for firefighters and significantly improves their pay and benefits. It's all part of an effort to keep more experienced firefighters on the job. Nate Hedgie has more for KUNC.
1: I meet Dave Carmen outside of a coffee shop in the college town of Bozeman, Montana. How was the drive? It was good, it was really good, yeah. Carmen is a young, fit guy, early 20s. He just finished his second season as a wildland firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service. He loves the work, but like a lot of his colleagues, he struggles with low pay and temporary benefits. It's not stable, you never really know how much money you'll be making in a given season. Carmen made $15 an hour last summer, plus some overtime and hazard pay when he was actively fighting fires. It still wasn't enough to rent an apartment in Western Montana, where housing prices have skyrocketed. So when Carmen wasn't out on a fire, he was sleeping in the bed of his pickup truck. At first, I just had a, like an inflatable camping pad that was pretty uncomfortable. Later, I got a, a bigger mattress. Um, But I had a jet boil and a two-burner Coleman stove, so I actually had a lot of cooking options. And then I had a tent, too, for when I wanted more space. The whole situation made Carmen second guess whether firefighting was really a great career move. But then the infrastructure package passed. And now there's a good chance he'll see his base pay increase by 50 percent. And his seasonal job could become permanent, which means year-round health insurance and other benefits. That looks awfully sweet for Carmen's future in the Forest Service. You could afford rent, maybe even start a family someday. It would turn the firefighting job into a long-term opportunity. And that's the goal, to get seasoned firefighters like Carmen to stay on the job, especially as blazes in the West become more severe and more dangerous. During peak season, about 15,000 federal firefighters are battling blazes. But in recent years, many experienced firefighters are quitting after the season ends. A lot of them are getting
3: out of fire completely.
1: Reva Duncan is a member of the nonprofit advocacy group, Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. She's also a retired regional fire chief with the Forest Service. That agency loses 10% of its fire workforce every year. Because
2: the demands of the job, being away from home and family, you know, just don't make it worth it with the low pay.
1: She calls the infrastructure law a good first step towards boosting recruitment and retention.
2: Some people who are on the fence or thinking about leaving have decided to stay right? Because they finally feel a sense of hope. They feel like things are changing for the better.
1: So that's a really good thing. But she warns that the infrastructure law's funding is only good for five or six years. There are other caveats, too, such as who gets a pay increase. The law tells federal officials to increase base salaries for firefighters in places where it's hard to recruit or retain workers it's up to the agencies to decide exactly where that is. Our preference is to eliminate that caveat entirely. It's why we introduced Tim's Act. That's Colorado Democratic Representative Jonah Goose. He and a group of bipartisan lawmakers introduced the bill named for Tim Hart, a smoke jumper who died of injuries from the job. It would make some provisions in the infrastructure law permanent, including better pay, benefits, and mental health services. We know that the suicide rate for firefighters is 30 times higher than the general public. Um. So ensuring that uh, our firefighters have those health benefits and mental health benefits available to them is critically important. Tim's act would also mandate one week of mental health leave during the fire season. That's something Patrick Benson wants to see. He just finished his first season as a wildland firefighter. It's a tough job. We're walking in a park on a cold day in his hometown of Missoula, Montana. Benson says he sometimes works every day of the week during fire season for long hours without much of a break sweating in the heat, digging a fire line. It's exhausting. It's exhausting mentally. It's exhausting physically. And then you compound that on top of the fact that you don't know how long you're gonna be gone for or you know what you're gonna encounter while you're out there. It's all a lot. And while he welcomes help from the infrastructure law, it might not be enough to keep him on the job next season, especially as a tight labor market nationwide has employers competing for labor. I kinda wanna try carpentry. So I'm thinking about taking a carpentry job. It would keep him at home with a stable schedule. I don't know a ton about it, to be honest, but fingers crossed and hopefully not as much of an, of an emotional toll. In the coming months, federal agencies will sort out how the new pay and benefits will be applied. It's unclear, though, when exactly wildland firefighters will start seeing bigger paychecks. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie.
0: Our series, Silent Season, was produced by the Mountain West News Bureau that KUNC is a member of. You can find and share these stories at our website, KUNC.org. With an unusually dry and warm start to winter, many Coloradans may be spending extra time on the state's hiking trails. But for beginners, the state's endless trails and experienced hikers on them can be uninviting— Hiking can be even more daunting for Coloradans whose bodies are not thin, white, or cisgender. Rachel Guerreri of Broomfield felt like an outsider when she first started hiking in Colorado. So she started a hiking group called Fat Babes in the Wild to create a community for people who felt the same way. Guerreri joined us in October to talk about the group and why it's important for people of all body types to claim and belong in outdoor spaces. She started by sharing what some of her early hiking experiences were like in Colorado.
3: So when I first moved to Colorado, I kind of had a a hard time finding trails that I could actually do and didn't feel intimidated by. Um, A lot of the trails that were marked easy on all trails also had some um, parts of the trail where you had to navigate your own way. And I was like, whoa, this is a little bit more than I could handle. So I reached out to um, some of my longtime friends that have lived here and asked for hiking spots that are easily accessible to everyone. And that is what has taken me to Brainerd Lake, which is where we've had two of our hikes so far, and doing the trails up there. And it's felt like being up there, it's all the trails are, for the most part, very well-worn and well-marked. And it's not as
0: intimidating. Well, then let's talk about Fat Babes in the Wild. How did you get the idea for this group?
3: Wow, so... (laughs) <laughs> it all just started two months ago. Really, this is this is a brand new brand new group. Um, about uh, in early August, I reached out um, on a Facebook group called Colorado Girl Gang, and I just posted, "Hey, would anyone want to go hiking with me? This is a low pressure hike. We're gonna stop and catch our breath." Um, while we smell the wildflowers, and I'm gonna bring my camera so we can take some hot pics of ourselves, filling ourselves in nature. I was expecting like five responses, but just that night I got 160 messages of people that are wanting this and have felt the same way that hiking has been intimidated. They've lived here their whole lives and they've never been in the mountains because they're intimidated. Therefore, I created the group because I just felt there was such a need for it in this community.
0: If you had that many responses the first time out, who all showed up to hike and how did you manage a large group like that?
3: <laughs> well, our first hike, we had a ton of interest. We actually had um, about 18 people show up at the trailhead. I brought name tags and I also had um, my friend who is kind of helping me co-organize this, her name is Kate Halber, to kind of help me navigate leading the group and set down some ground rules about hiking and what this is all about at the trailhead. You know, like I would set up checkpoints, otherwise we go the same speed as everyone else. If you wanna go ahead, here's the checkpoint, we'll meet you there. If not, we, mar- we, we walk as slow as the slowest person. So it's really non-intimidating and a lot of everyone that actually joins me on this trip had never been up there. So once they went up there, they're like, wow, I can't believe this exists and it's actually accessible for all of us. This is amazing. So I've been really happy to share one of my favorite places with this community.
0: I know you've only been around for a couple of months, but who is showing up to your hikes?
3: Predominantly women. Women. Um, we have people coming from Fort Collins, Castle Rock, Colorado Springs. I was really impressed how far people were willing to drive. And of course we this is a queer friendly group. So we have people that identify as non-binary. Um, we also have black and people of color. Joining us, it's it's open to everyone. Pretty much, if you love a fat person, or if you yourself are fat and you want to celebrate movement in the outdoors, you're welcome to join us.
0: And when you are all hiking with fat babes in the wild, how does it feel different compared to when you're hiking with others or with thin presenting people?
3: It's very empowering um, because all these groups of people are so encouraging and empowering, you know, typically when I hike with thin presenting people, um, I feel self-conscious. I'm like, oh my gosh, are they hearing me breathe? You know, everyone said breathe, but I was worried about like them hearing me being out of breath or having to stop or slow down their hike. So with this group, you know, that's expected and everyone encourages breaks and, you know, like it's, it's not a, it doesn't feel like a burden to them to have to stop. And you feel so empowered by being out there with this group of predominantly fat people. And other people see these fat people on the trail. And I'm trying to break the stigma of fat people existing in these outdoor spaces. And I really, I love that because children see us, other people see us. And it, it's, it's breaking the stigma.
0: I want to come back to something you mentioned about bringing your camera along. Is there a, a specific reason for, for bringing your camera other than to get amazing photos of the outdoors?
3: Uh, yeah, that's a part of it that kind of uh, sets us apart as, of being different. As I bring my camera because a lot of times fat people don't have the resources or the friend group to want to go up into the woods and take pictures of themselves feeling themselves in nature. And I feel like everyone deserves to have that experience. You know, we live in a social media culture of influencers. So you see then presenting people out in the wild, taking all these hot and cool photos and you want to do it too. And so I kind of bring that opportunity to it by encouraging other people. You know, if I I can't take your picture with my Canon at that moment, The other girls are around snapping their phones and like posing and stuff. It's really empowering to get outdoors and really feel yourself outdoors. And I love that.
0: Well, for people who would love to join the group, um, how can they do that? And what do you have a next event planned?
3: We do. We do. So we're doing a meetup at Anderson Farms on October 21st at 6 p.m. I've rented a fire pit for the group. Um, All that's asked is that you buy your entry ticket. Um, This is Thursday, the 21st at 6 p.m. at Anderson Farms. If you're interested in joining the group, this is a Facebook group. It started as a Facebook group. And on Facebook, you just search Fat Babes in the Wild. You'll have a few questions to answer,
0: and then you'll be let in. Rachel Guerreri is the creator of the Fat Babes in the Wild hiking group. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a
3: pleasure talking to you and sharing this message with everyone.
0: That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear the story of some of the most important historic homes along the Front Range. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Jackie High and Ashley Jeffcoat handled the digital side. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.